Well, good morning. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, where you'll find your place in Luke 8, verse 22. Luke 8, verse 22. This morning, I want to consider the meaning of the miracles of Jesus. What is their meaning? What is their purpose? In the text before us, we're going to see that we are confronted with two mighty deeds, two of Jesus' mighty deeds, and we've already seen many, as he here confronts a storm without and a storm within. And even as he confronts these, uh, these two storms, these two great powers, we're going to see that the meaning of what he has done, though the thing that he did is evident, the meaning is difficult. And so the first instance where we see Jesus confront the storm without, we're going to see that it raises questions for us. And the second portion of the passage, the longer portion, we're going to see that as Jesus confronts the storm within, that we're going to receive answers to those questions. And in these questions and in these answers, Luke is going to show us the loving lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ. The loving lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in showing us his loving lordship, he's going to call us to place our faith more firmly in him. So if you found your place, would you follow along with me as I read, beginning in Luke 8, verse 22. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came, windstorm came down on the lake. And they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it 
told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. They were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Father in heaven, we pray, O Lord, that you would give us minds to understand your word. Give us wisdom to know it. Pray that you would give us hearts to receive it. That you would do such a work in us that mirrors the miraculous works we see in this passage. That we would be put in our right mind and at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ, as it were, to learn from him, to learn from your word. These things we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we consider the miracles of this passage, let me invite you to take a walk down memory lane with me. Let's go back in Luke and revisit some of the miraculous deeds that we've already seen. You see, back in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, Jesus introduced his ministry with these words, quoted from the prophet Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When Jesus went from that synagogue there in Nazareth and went into Capernaum, he began to do mighty works. As he proclaimed the kingdom of God, he also demonstrated its coming through mighty deeds that were designed or that were, dem- that were part of his way of showing the release that God was granting through him. Jesus came to proclaim release and he came to bring release. And that included the release of those who were blind and those who were oppressed by demons and by illnesses and by all sorts of diseases and other difficulties. Jesus came to proclaim and to bring release from all of the effects of sin in this fallen world. There is one meaning of the miraculous deeds that he performed. But he also did mighty works as a proof As we read this morning together when we read from Acts chapter 2, these were attestations. That is, Peter there in Acts chapter 2 said that Jesus of Nazareth was attested to the men of Israel as the Son of God, the Christ whom God had sent. They were proofs that proved the extent of his authority. And so, for instance, when he was questioned as to how he could forgive the sins of a paralyzed man, He demonstrated that authority by also giving strength to that man's legs, by making him to walk out from that place. And again, when he was questioned because of what he permitted his disciples to do on the Sabbath, and because of his intent to heal on the Sabbath and to do good works, he demonstrated his lordship, that he is Lord of the Sabbath, even as he healed the hand of a paralyzed man in the synagogue on a Sabbath day. But he did not merely prove the extent of his authority. Remember how he raised the dead son of a widow in Nain as a, as a response to his great compassion for this woman. He did these mighty works in a way that showed the depth of his love. 
the depth of his great love and compassion for God's people. And through these mighty works, he encouraged the faith of the doubting. Remember back in Luke chapter 7, how when John from prison began to doubt and sent messengers to Jesus asking whether he was the one who they were to wait for or should they wait for another. We read in Luke 7:21, in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receives their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so he encouraged the faith of the doubting. And he also validated the faith of the believing. As with the centurion who expressed his complete trust in the authority of Christ to heal his own servant. And so the miracles are meant for a revelatory purpose Through these mighty works, Jesus shows us something of himself. And he shows us something of God's purposes for us. Even as he calls us to place our faith more firmly in him. They are revelatory because they reveal to us the loving lordship of Christ. Even as they challenge us to believe. Well, in the text before us, This morning, as we come to Luke 8.22, we're going to begin seeing another series of miracles. Another series of miracles that will bring us to the end of Luke chapter 8. And the first two include, as I have already framed them, as I have already stated, a storm without and a storm within. Whereby the first storm raises questions, which the second narrative, the second passage will answer for us. And in this series of miracles, we see that Jesus is challenging the expectation of his disciples. He is pushing them to see that he is greater than they have yet imagined. Because the way in which he's going to demonstrate his might and his authority in these passages is going to exceed what we have seen before. This passage has many parallels to Luke chapter 5, 1 through 11, where you will remember Jesus called Peter and he gave him that great catch of fish. There's a great deal of language we'll see that's very similar to that text, as if Luke would have us remember that passage as we consider this one. There Jesus demonstrated his authority over the fish, even as he called these fishermen to become fishers of men. But here in this passage, he shows his authority in a greater way by showing his authority over the sea itself. And then in what follows... We are reminded of the many times when Jesus did mighty deeds. In some cases, he cast out demons. Even casting out demons from many people. Even casting out several demons from one woman. But here he casts out a multitude of demons from a single man. And as he does it, he also does it for a man who is a Gentile. A man who is unclean. Whom he heals of his uncleanness. In other words, we see so many of the things we've seen in discrete miracles before combined in this single man. And still, Jesus demonstrates his lordship over it all. So as we come to the text then, what we see as the narrative unfolds is we see that Jesus takes the initiative. He gets in a boat with his disciples and he says to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. Now, let me draw your attention briefly to that word lake, and you say why. And 
The word lake is one that we hear often, especially where we live beside a great lake, and yet it's not a word that we see very often in the New Testament. Normally, this place is referred to as the Sea of Galilee, but here it's referred to as a lake. It's a word that only occurs outside of Revelation in two places, this text and that passage I mentioned in Luke chapter 5. And when we see something like that, we should stop and we should take note. Why would Luke use this this, this term, this, this word, that may be common to us in our language, but in his speech was not so common to him? And we begin to see that there are many other ways in which this passage resonates with that one. The way in which he's described as getting into a boat and setting out is very similar to what he did when he stepped into that boat on the Sea of Galilee, on the Lake of Gennesaret, that first time with Peter. The way that they address him as master, again, parallels what we saw in Luke chapter 5, the way in which Peter first addressed Jesus as master before he addressed him as Lord. We see that in both cases, the boat was very near sinking. In the first case, as they were pulling this great catch of fish into the boat. And in this case, as they were being deluged with water. And we see in both cases, they were seized with fear and amazement at the authority of Christ. It's as if we ought to remember that, or as if the disciples also ought to have remembered that first event. Were they becoming comfortable with Jesus? Were they taking for granted his mighty deeds? Luke doesn't tell us. But it does seem to suggest that as we consider this context following after the parable of the sower, that maybe they are some soil that is in need of tilling. Maybe they are some soil that needs some mulch. Maybe they need some work in order for their faith to grow. Maybe they need a reminder of the Lordship of Christ. Or something that will show them that it goes far beyond anything that they could imagine. And so he gives them that demonstration of his lordship. He says, let us go across the other side of the lake. And they set out. And then as they sailed, he fell asleep. And even as we hear that, those words, when we say, I fell asleep, we tend to speak in a passive way. It kind of came upon me. But even this action is a very active action. For Jesus, he goes to sleep. There's another way you might put it. And then a windstorm comes on the lake, and they're being deluged. That they're being deluged with water. They're filling with water, and they're in danger. They come into danger. It's a it's a terrible sight, and yet Jesus is asleep through it all. You may even be reminded of this narrative concerning Jonah, how Jonah went down and slept on the cushion, and the great tempest arose. We see this in that, that type of narrative. Whether or not Luke intends us to see a particular allusion to that passage, we do see that this storm comes upon this lake, and these men are in danger, and they don't know what to do. Just like when those men, way back in Jonah's day, went and woke him, not having any idea what to do, and telling him, you cry out to your God. Maybe he will save us. Well, here, Jesus, as they wake him, they won't say, cry out to our God so that he might save us. No, we're going to see that he is the one who is presented as the one who is able to save them. He is God who can save them. But they're going to need to see that. He's going to need to bring them to this point. And their faith is going to be weak. 
Even as they're crying out to them, him for help, they cry out with those words, Master, Master, we are perishing. And we see often in these contexts where they address him as Master, not as Lord, maybe not always, but very often when they use this lesser language, that they aren't quite seeing him in all that he is. They aren't quite seeing him with all the authority and all the power and all the ability that he has to save. They realize that he can help them in some way. But their expectations are too small. They're not looking for enough from the one who is not just their master, but is their Lord. Yet he demonstrates his gracious and loving lordship in any case. He wakes, he rebukes the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased and they were calm. The language that Luke uses to describe this action by Jesus, where he rebukes the sea, he rebukes the waves, he rebukes the wind, it's language that we normally see applied to Jesus' works of exorcism, whereby he casts out demons. He rebukes demons. Sometimes we see that he rebukes fevers. And here maybe there's a subtle indication that there is some sort of demonic power, demonic opposition that would not have Jesus come across this lake, that would not have Jesus come to the land of the Gerasenes. If it's there, it's subtle. But we're going to see in a moment that that opposition is very clear. Here, however, we simply see that Jesus demonstrates his authority over the wind and the waves, over the sea, and how, that it's no different than his authority to cast out demons. He can rebuke both, and both must obey. It's an amazing display of lordship. Now, I want you to know something of the way in which uh, 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 the Jewish people thought about the sea, because it will help you to see why this was so stunning for the disciples. You see, the, the sea was a place of chaos, a place of disorder. The, the, the people of Israel at one point tried to have a, a, a merchant uh, marine, uh, tried to have ships that might go abroad, and they were destroyed in the storm, and they gave up that hope. They, they weren't a seafaring people. They, they generally were afraid of the sea. We can read about that in the book of Kings, but we won't turn there now. But just know that they were generally afraid of the sea. They thought of it as a place of chaos and disorder that could be controlled only by God. You can see this, for instance, in some passages from the Psalms. Let me read one from Psalm 89, verses 5 through 9. Here the psalmist writes, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. God is the one and the only one who is able to rule the raging sea and to bring calm to this disordered ocean, to the waters that cover this whole wide earth. You saw in that psalm, not the angels, not those whom he calls the holy ones, the assembly of the holy ones, not spiritual powers. They can't do what God can do. God is the one who is able to still the raging of the sea. Maybe they can stir it up. Maybe they can stir up a tempest. 
But it doesn't matter. He is still Lord of it all. So you begin to see why this was such a stunning revelation for them. As Jesus rebukes the wind and the raging seas, and they obey, they naturally wonder, who is this? But before they say that, Jesus can see it on their faces. Whatever caused him to see it on their faces, Luke doesn't tell us, but he looks at them and he says, where is your faith? We can hear this in two senses. As in, why don't you have any faith? Or in whom or what are you trusting? As we apply it to ourselves. In both cases, this is a problem that challenges our faith. Why don't we have any faith when it comes to trusting in Christ? And why do we have so much faith when it comes to trusting in someone or something else? It's the question that he poses to them, the question which this first narrative raises, the question which I propose will be answered in the narrative that follows. They didn't have an answer. They only had a question. They feared and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Now let me say a word about this fear. Last week I extolled the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom. I spoke about how if we want to grow in wisdom, we must begin here with a fear of the Lord that issues forth in a right response of repentance. This is not that kind of fear. This is a different kind of fear. How do I know? Why do I suggest that? Because we're going to see the same kind of fear in the response of the people from the city that came out to see what Jesus had done in the country of the Gerasenes. And then next week, as we consider Jairus' daughter and Jairus, we're going to see that Jesus will say to him in verse 50, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. In that context, Jesus contrasts this particular kind of fear with real faith. Just so, in this text where he calms a storm, he contrasts their fear with his question about their lack of faith. They don't have faith, but rather they have a kind of fear. But it's not the kind of fear that is properly called the fear of the Lord. Bruce Waltke, commentator on Proverbs, has commented on this phrase, the fear of the Lord, that it's rather like the term butterfly. You can't separate its parts and to butter and fly and keep the meaning. Those words, when they come together, they refer to something quite distinct. A proper attitude towards God of reverence, of trust, of fear, yes, but the kind of fear that a child has for a loving father, fearing to offend him, and yet finding her, his or her refuge in their loving father. That's the kind of fear that we ought to have. That's not the kind of fear that they have here. This kind of fear is one that is contrary to faith. They're afraid of the storm. They're afraid of the wind. They're afraid of the waves. And then they're struck by this awesome sight of one who can command even the winds and the water. And they obey him. And yet Jesus is graciously showing them his lordship so that he will not have to ask this question, where is your faith? But so that they will be commended to us at some point as examples of faith whom we ought to follow. And so it is for us. 
He calls us to grow in faith, even as he asks us, where is our faith? Not as a rebuke, but as a challenge to trust him yet more firmly. Well, here are these questions then, and I propose to answer them then, as we come to the next section in our passage. Here they sail to the country of the Gerasenes. It's opposite Galilee, we're told, and this is a Gentile place. We can see characteristics of its Gentile culture by the fact that there's a herd of pigs in the nearby vicinity. And we know that from history. This is mainly a Gentile-occupied area. And Jesus steps out on land, and immediately he is met by this man who is possessed by demons. And we ought to pay attention to the way in which Luke describes this man. Point for point, each description is important. There met him a man from the city, we're told, who had demons, not one demon, but many demons. And we're not yet told how many, or given an indication of how many. But we are told about this man's history. For a long time, he had worn no clothes. He's going about naked in the countryside because of what these demons are doing to him. He had not lived in a house for, very, for, for such a long time. Rather, he lives among the tombs. This is a, a, an indication of his uncleanness, coming in contact with a place where the dead would be. And we ought to pay attention to these characteristics Uh, descriptions that remind us of death and make us to think of death. He's living in a place where the dead live, so to speak. He's living among the tombs. There's a picture of a man who is, in many ways, apart from the fact that he's possessed by demons, a man who is unclean as well, not least because he's a Gentile, but because of the way he goes about in the midst of the tombs. And he sees Jesus and he cries out like a crazed man. He cries out. He falls down before him. And we ought to note these descriptions of his actions as well. He cries out with a loud voice. This is a man who would terrify anyone as much as that storm. You would want to keep far away from this man. But not Jesus. Jesus is not afraid. Even as he comes at him with strong words saying, what have you to do with me? It's like, what do we have to do with one another? Why are you here? What have you and me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God. He knows who he is. He knows who this is. He begins to answer that question that was on the disciples' lips. Who then is this? He's Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. And we've heard that phrase before as well in Luke. We heard it on the lips of another spiritual being, but that time the angel Gabriel, who declared to Mary of the child that was formed in her womb, he shall be called the Son of the Most High God. And here we see it. He is being called the Son of the Most High God as he is. He is recognized as such by this demon who testifies and testifies rightly to who he is. And yet he confronts him. As if at first he's going to resist the authority of this one who is the Son of the Most High God. But you see that doesn't last. As he falls down before him, he begins to beg him. Don't torment me. Why? Luke fills us in, takes us back in the narrative to fill us in on what has been going on. Jesus is saying to the man, that is to the unclean demon in the man, come out of him. 
he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. And Luke gives us a bit more of the backstory as he characterizes how this legion of demons we'll find oppresses this man for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. And we can see that picture of this man who is overcome at times with sudden fits of rage and power. And so the people think, well, what will we do? We will chain him. We will guard him. And yet, when the demon sees him, no chains can hold him. No guard can stop him. And why? What is the demon doing to him? As he causes him to break those bonds, as he drives him out into the desert. Let me suggest to you that here is a picture of the work of the devil. What he does in opposing the work of God. And particularly with respect to man. He seeks to destroy the image of God in man. God made man in his image from the beginning. In his image and likeness. God made us to bear witness to his glory. He made man with a special relationship. One that David extolled in Psalm 8 when he said, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. David asked, what is man that you are mindful of him? David marveled at the fact that God set such love on man as the pinnacle of his creation, when he considered the whole wide universe and all its glory. And Satan and his work, and his demons with him, they seek to destroy this. They make this man more beast than man. They make this man to go go about unclothed. They make him as if he were nothing more than a dead man walking, causing terror to those around him. It's a picture that's important for us to see in contrast. Because we're going to see what I have said, not just the lordship of Christ, but the loving lordship of Christ. And here what we see is the lordship of a demon over a particular man. And it's anything but loving. It's anything but merciful. It's anything but gracious. It's nothing but destruction in this man's life. And in the life of his community. That he can't even live in his own home. Jesus asks the demons, what is your name? And they answer, legion, for many demons had entered him. Luke doesn't tell us how many, but we know from history that a legion in Rome was about 5,000, maybe 6,000 men. It doesn't mean that this was five or 6,000 demons, but it was some thousands of demons. In another of the Gospels, we'll see that they rush into a herd of some 2,000 pigs. And maybe that means there were 2,000 demons or maybe... Multiple demons entered one pig. The point is not how many. The point that it is great legion, and he doesn't characterize their strength in terms of the number that inhabit this man, but with a term that would remind Luke's initial readers of the strength of the Roman government, of their military might in legions that would go forth and demonstrate the power of Rome. And you think, how Jesus' disciples and so many others in his day expected him to come as the Messiah who would vanquish the Roman legions. But he came for a more important foe at that moment. He came to vanquish a different sort of legion. The legion of spiritual forces opposing the work of God. 
standing against his work in utter rebellion against him. And they have to beg. The merciless must beg him for mercy. And they do. They begged him, do not command us to depart into the abyss. You see, they know what Jesus brings. They know what he is bringing with him. They know what comes when he comes. And it's their utter destruction. Those who mercilessly cause destruction, these demons, they will go to everlasting destruction. And that will be in the abyss. And they say, they they don't deny that that's going to happen. They don't pretend like they can stop that. Not yet. Let us cause a little more destruction. It's a picture of the foolishness of unrepentant sin. They have no possibility for repentance. We know that from Scripture. And yet so many human beings for whom there is a responsibility and a possibility to repent before God act in very much the same way. We would deny that these things might happen. That Jesus Christ would stand as the Lord who will judge the living and the dead someday. Some will deny that. Some will simply resist it. Some will suppress that knowledge and refuse to repent. What utter foolishness. There is no repentance available to this legion. But there is repentance available to us. Would that none of us here would be such a people who act like this merciless legion seeking mercy only for a little space of time and not for eternity. Well, this, this legion begs him not to make them to depart into the abyss until the, unto their final destruction. And they go on to beg that he might permit them to go into the nearby herd of pigs And I really ought to say something about that because it has caused some difficulty for interpreters because these pigs would have represented a living for someone or some people. It would have represented a great deal of wealth. And here Jesus permits them to go into them and the pigs go into the sea and are destroyed. As one of our brothers has shared with me, his family some years ago lived for an entire winter on a pig. 2,000-some pigs. How many people could live for how long on that amount of wealth? And yet, when we think about problems like this, I always find it helpful to begin with those things that I know before I deal with those things that are difficult to resolve. And here's something I know. I know the complete and total love of Christ. I know His extraordinary compassion. I know that nothing He would do would be unloving. And I know that he is Lord of all. He is the one who commanded fish. And they came into Simon Peter's nets. And he is one who is Lord of those pigs. The one who made them. I don't think he was surprised. I don't think this was cruel. I don't think this was accidental. I think it was completely within his lordship. And I know that his lordship is loving. And so when we think about what has happened here, what has been lost is 2,000 pigs. But what is shown in the loss of those 2,000 pigs is that this one man is greater than that. And even greater than that still is the presence of the one who is Lord of all creation. 
that he would come into the midst of sinners and show them grace. These demons did meet their demise. They tried to delay it, but they went into the sea. Those pigs perished. And I think that this signifies that they did indeed go to the abyss. For in there, as they, as they understand it, and as we are to understand it from Revelation and other passages, the sea is associated with the abyss. But whatever happened to them, whether from there they were free to go about and roam the earth again, we know that they will ultimately meet their final destruction. Their destructive power was clear. And Jesus put an end to that destructive power in that place for that people. There is the sign of his love. And so I know that whatever happened to those pigs, it was not cruel. It was not unloving. It was not accidental. The loving Lord Jesus Christ did this. I suspect and I suggest to you so this might be a sign to the people who came and bore witness to it. You see those people, they come from the city and they find point for point this man is restored. He's no longer naked, but now he's clothed. He's no longer falling down at Jesus' feet and begging him and crying out, but he's sitting at his feet in his right mind. We can infer that he's learning from him. We see that this man is restored completely and fully and wholly. Point for point, all of those descriptions are answered as we proceed through this narrative. And how do they respond? Just like the disciples when Jesus calmed the storm. They were afraid. Not with, fear, but, or not with faith, but fear. Not fear the Lord, but the kind of fear that says, Go from us, not let us fly to you for refuge. Please, depart from us. We'd rather have this crazed man running around the tombs. We can find another way to where we must travel and where we must go. We can find another way for our herds to graze. But please depart from us, they say. It's a sad and striking picture of unbelief, of the unbelief of a people who are rather more satisfied to stay in their condition because it really just affects this one man and they can live with it, not so much affecting them. They'd rather stay in the condition of their fallen state and all of the effects of the fall that are oppressing them and their city and their people than be delivered by the loving Lord, Jesus Christ. So this too is a warning for us. It's a challenge to us. When we see and we read about things that Jesus has done, how do we respond Do we respond to his mighty works and do we respond to his mighty deeds by seeing that the one who shows himself to be Lord of all is indeed our loving Lord and is worthy of all our trust even when difficulty attends the way in which he exercises his lordship in our lives? Are we more like Joseph who we've read about in these weeks past who could say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good and it wasn't you who sent me to Egypt but it was God who sent me here to preserve life, to do good. Are we that kind of people who trust in the lordship of Christ in that way, who have a right fear of the Lord or are we the kind of people who fear but not with faith, who would shrink back from these things, who would rather not think about them We'd rather not consider them. We'd rather go about our lives in the way that we always have, never seeking repentance, never seeking a relationship with Christ. 
or even if for those of us who have already come into that relationship with Christ, are we the kind of people who are simply content not to grow, not to grow in our uh, knowledge of His Word, not to grow in our faith in Him, not to be strengthened in that faith, not to love Him more fully as He works in us and refines us, but rather to simply go on in life, saying, well, I've done what was necessary. I've learned what I had to. I've been baptized and I believed and God will just work out the rest, I'm sure. Let us not be that kind of people. Let us be the kind of people that Jesus called his disciples to be. Not people who had a questionable faith, but people who have a strong and enduring faith, no matter what storms may come in life, and whether he calms the storm or he simply brings us through the storm, whether that storm is without or that storm is within, a people who trust that it is all under the rule of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be that kind of people. For we have that kind of God. His name is Jesus, the Son of the Most High. Now as this passage comes to a close, this man, he is the example of one who has responded rightly. As Jesus does depart and he seeks to return, this Gentile man, he now begs him, not the demons within him begging him to depart, but he now begs him that he might be with him, that he might go with him and be one of his disciples. But Jesus in his loving lordship has something different for him. For I did say that Jesus restored him point for point, restored him whole. And yet there's one thing left undone. Here we saw that this man was one who had not lived in a house but among the tombs. And now Jesus says, return to your home. And he sends him back with this gracious, loving message of the gospel. Go and tell them how much God has done for you. He sends him out as the first evangelist in these towns in the Decapolis. The first one who is there to go there and proclaim the good news of what God has done. And notice what he does as he goes forth proclaiming this good news. He went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Is it so hard to see the simple message in these miracles? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. He is the perfect Son of God, very God from very God, the one in whom the whole fullness of God dwelt bodily and dwells bodily even now as our risen Lord. He is God, and we are to embrace Him as the one who is God, the one who can command the wind and the waves. He's not just an angel. He's not just a lesser being. He's not a created being. He's the one through whom all things came into being. And in God's great love for us, He's the one whom God sent to restore us in the image of God. Paul will tell us in Romans chapter 8, there he'll tell us that we have been predestined for something amazing. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And here Jesus comes in this moment in time, restoring this one man into the image of God in some sense, and to be sure, in a fuller sense, at the resurrection when Christ comes again. 
And that's what he does in our lives. He restores us in the image of God. That's what the devil and that's what his minions seek to oppose. And we see it in our own world. We see a storm within and a storm without in the culture in which we live. One that opposes these very things. This restoring work of Christ. See, as I mentioned earlier, we were and are made in the image of God. And when we think about what it means to be made in the image of God, we must reflect on what God says in Genesis chapter 1. How that image bearing is demonstrated in the exercise of dominion over all that God made. Over the fish and over the birds and over the beasts. That it is also seen in the fact that God made us male and female. We see it there in Genesis 2 in the way that God made us to covenant with one another in marriage that lasts a lifetime as a picture of something of His redeeming purposes, as Paul will tell us in Ephesians 5. We see in all of that that God created man to work before the fall, before sin. He shows us the importance of work and He shows us the importance of rest. And yet, in this fallen world, we see Attempts to destroy all of these things, to reduce man to a mere animal, to reduce male and female to mere constructs, to mere choices, to reduce marriage to an inconvenience, only after redefining it in any way we choose, to make work an option, to make rest a religion. Does this look like anything but the work of the evil one in our world? And it can be overpowering. It does not have to come through demonic possession. It can come through technological, uh, technological possession, if you will. Societal pressures. Internal drives that are part of our fallen nature. There's a storm without and there's a storm within. But we do not face this storm without our loving Lord, who is Lord of it all. He is almighty over the storm. He loves you with an everlasting love. He came to restore us in the image of God, point for point, all things according to their time, some things now, some things by degree along the way, and all things when He comes again, and we see Him as He is, and are made like Him as He is. This is what Christ came to do. And He did it by going to a cross, by dying for our sins, by rising from the dead, by ascending to the right hand of the Father by assuring us that He will surely return and His Lordship will be seen. Just as we see in this text, the demon knows that He is Lord. There is a day coming when all will confess and all will bow the knee to the Lordship of Christ, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2.11. The question for us right now is, will we do that now? Where is our faith? Is our faith in ourselves, even to deal with these problems of the fallen world? Do we trust in ourselves and our own power and our own strength and our own ability to form movements to confront these problems in a fallen world? Or do we trust in the Lordship of Christ, the one who came to restore us and to restore this world and who will bring that work to completion at the day of Christ Jesus? Let us not wait until that day to confess our faith in him. Let us not be those who rebel now. Let us be those who believe and are renewed day by day. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we do pray, O Lord, that you would continue to renew us day by day, by degrees, as you have promised in the image of your Son. We pray by your great and mighty redeeming work, which you perform through your Son and the Spirit whom you have sent. O Lord, our triune God, we pray that you would do this work in us. May it begin with that right kind of fear that issues forth in a real and true abiding faith so that we might be such a people who are found in our right minds at the feet of our Lord, believing that he indeed is the loving Lord of all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.